Chapter Eight, Part One of the Rainbow Trail by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Hogan of Naste Bega, Part One. The home of Naste Bega lay far up the cedared slope, with the craggy yellow cliffs and the black canyon and the pine fringed top of Navajo Mountain behind, and to the fore the vast rolling descent of cedar groves and sage flats and sandy washes. No dim dark range made bold outline along the horizon. The stretch of gray and purple and green extended to the blue line of sky. Down the length of one sage level, Shefford saw a long lane where the brush and the grass had been beaten flat. This, the Navajo said, was a track where the young braves had raced their mustangs and had striven for supremacy before the eyes of maidens and the old people of the tribe. Naste Bega, did you ever race here? asked Shefford. I am a chief by birth, but I was stolen from my home, and now I cannot ride well enough to race the braves of my tribe, the Indian replied bitterly. In another place, Joe Lake halted his horse and called Shefford's attention to a big yellow rock lying along the trail and then he spoke in Navajo to the Indian. "'I've heard of this stone. Isende, aha,' said Joe, after Naste Bega had spoken. "'Get down and let's see.' Shefford dismounted, but the Indian kept his seat in the saddle. Joe placed a big hand on the stone and tried to move it. According to Shefford's eye measurement, the stone was nearly oval, perhaps three feet high by a little over two in width. Joe threw off his sombrero, took a deep breath, and bending over, clasped the stone in his arms. He was an exceedingly heavy and powerful man, and it was plain to Shefford that he meant to lift the stone, if that were possible. Joe's broad shoulders strained, flattened, his arms bulged, his joints cracked, and his neck corded, and his face turned black. By gigantic effort, he lifted the stone and moved it about six inches. Then, as he released his hold, he fell, and when he sat up, his face was wet with sweat. Try it, he said to Shefford, with his lazy smile. See if you can heave it. Shefford was strong, and there had been a time when he took pride in his strength. Something in Joe's supreme effort, and in the gloom of the Indian's eyes, made Shefford curious about this stone. He bent over, and grasped it as Joe had done. He braced himself and lifted with all his power, until a red blur obscured his sight, and shooting stars seemed to explode in his head. But he could not even stir the stone. "'Shefford, maybe you'll be able to heft it some day,' observed Joe. Then he pointed to the stone and addressed Naste Bega. The Indian shook his head and spoke for a moment. This is the Ascende Aha of the Navajos, explained Joe. The young braves are always trying to carry this stone. As soon as one of them can carry it, he is a man. He who carries it farthest is the biggest man. And just so soon as any Indian can no longer lift it, he is old. Naste Bega says the stone has been carried two miles in his lifetime. His own father carried it the length of six steps. Well, it's plain to me that I am not a man, said Shefford, or else I am old. Joe Lake drawled his lazy laugh, and mounting, rode up the trail. 
but Shefford lingered beside the Indian. By nigh, said Mastabega, I am chief of my tribe, but I have never been a man. I never lifted that stone. See what the pale-face education has done for the Indian. The Navajo's bitterness made Shefford thoughtful. Could greater injury be done to a man than this, to rob him of his heritage of strength? Joe drove the bobbing pack train of burros into the cedars, where the smoke of the Hogans curled upward, and soon the whistling of mustangs, the barking of dogs, the bleating of sheep told of his reception. And presently Shefford was in the midst of an animated scene. Great, woolly, fierce dogs, like wolves, ran out to meet the visitors. Sheep and goats were everywhere, and little lambs scarcely able to walk, with others frisky and frolicsome. There were pure white lambs, and some that appeared to be painted, and some so beautiful with their fleecy white, all except black faces or ears or tails or feet. They ran right under Nack Yaw's legs and bumped against Shefford and kept bleeding their thin piped welcome. Under the cedars surrounding the several Hogans were mustangs that took Shefford's eye. He saw an iron gray with white mane and the tail sweeping to the ground, and a fiery black, wilder than any other beast he had ever seen, and a pinto as wonderfully painted as the little lambs, and, most striking of all, a pure cream-colored mustang with grace and fine lines and beautiful mane and tail, and strange to see, eyes as blue as azure. This albino mustang came right up to Shepherd, an action in singular contrast with that of the others, and showed a tame and friendly spirit toward him and Nakyaw. Indeed, Shepard had reason to feel ashamed of Nakyaw's temper or jealousy. The first Indians to put in an appearance were a flock of children, half-naked, with tangled manes of raven-black hair and skin like golden bronze. They appeared bold and shy by turns. Then, a little sinewy man, old and beaten and gray, came out of the principal Hogan. He wore a blanket round his bent shoulders. His name was Hostine Doten, and it meant gentle man. His fine, old, wrinkled face lighted with a smile of kindly interest. His squaw followed him, and she was as venerable as he. Shefford caught a glimpse of the shy, dark Glen Nespa, Nastebega's sister, but she did not come out. Other Indians appeared, coming from adjacent Hogan's. Nastebega turned the Mustangs loose among those Shefford had noticed, and presently there rose a snorting, whistling, kicking, plunging melee. A cloud of dust hid them, and a thudding of swift hoofs told of a run through the cedars. Joe Lake began picking over stacks of goatskins and bags of wool that were piled against the Hogan. "'Reckon we'll have one grand job packing out this load,' he growled. "'It's not so heavy, but awkward to pack.' It developed presently from talk with the old Navajo that this pile was only half of the load to be packed to Cayenta, and the other half was round the corner of the mountain in the camp of Paiutes. Hosting Doton said he would send to the camp and have the Paiutes bring their share over. The suggestion suited Joe, who wanted to save his burrows as much as possible. Accordingly, 
a messenger was dispatched to the Paiute camp, and Shefford, with time on his hands and poignant memory to combat, decided to recall his keen interest in the Navajo and learn, if possible, what the Indian's life was like. What would a day of his natural life be? In the gray of dawn, when the hush of the desert night still lay deep over the land, the Navajo stirred in his blanket and began to chant to the morning light. It began very soft and low, a strange, broken murmur, like the music of a brook, and as it swelled, that weird and mournful tone was slowly lost in one of hope and joy. The Indian soul was coming out of night, blackness, the sleep that resembled death, into the day, the light that was life. Then he stood in the door of his hogan, his blanket round him, and faced the east. Night was lifting out of the clefts and ravines. The rolling cedar ridges and the sage flats were softly gray, with thin veils like smoke mysteriously rising and vanishing. The colorless rocks were changing. A long, horizon-wide gleam of light, rosiest in the center, lay low down in the east and momentarily brightened. One by one the stars in the deep blue sky paled and went out, and the blue dome changed and lightened. Night had vanished on invisible wings, and silence broke to the music of a mockingbird. The rose in the east deepened, a wisp of cloud turned gold. Dim distant mountains showed dark against the red, and low down in a notch a rim of fire appeared. Over the soft ridges and valleys crept a wondrous transfiguration. It was as if every blade of grass, every leaf of sage, every twig of cedar, the flowers, the trees, the rocks came to life at the sight of the sun. The red disk rose, and a golden fire burned over the glowing face of that lonely waste. The Navajo, dark, stately, inscrutable, faced the sun, his god. This was his great spirit. The desert was his mother, but the sun was his life. To the keeper of the winds and rains, to the master of light, to the maker of fire, to the giver of life, the Navajo sent up his prayer. Of all the good things of the earth, let me always have plenty. Of all the beautiful things of the earth, let me always have plenty. Peacefully, let my horses go, and peacefully, let my sheep go. God of the heavens, give me many sheep and horses. God of the heavens, help me to talk straight. Goddess of the earth, my mother, let me walk straight. Now all is well. Now all is well. Now all is well. Now all is well. Hope and faith were his. A chief would be born to save the vanishing tribe of Navajos. A bride would rise from a wind, kiss of the lilies in the moonlight. He drank from the clear, cold spring, bubbling from under mossy rocks. He went into the cedars, and the tracks in the trails told him of the visitors of night. His mustangs whistled to him from the ridgetops, standing clear with heads up and manes flying, and then trooped down through the sage. The shepherd dogs, guardians of the flocks, barked him a welcome, and the sheep bleated and the lambs pattered round him. In the hogan, by the warm red fire, his woman baked his bread and cooked his meat, and he satisfied his hunger. 
Then he took choice meat to the hogan of a sick relative, and joined in the song and dance and the prayer that drove away the evil spirit of illness. Down in the valley, in a sandy, sunny place, was his cornfield, and here he turned in the water from the ditch and worked a while, and went his contented way. He loved his people, his women, and his children. To his son, he said, be bold and brave, grow like the pine, work and ride and play that you may be strong. Talk straight, love your brother, give half to your friend, honor your mother that you may honor your wife, pray and listen to your gods. Then with his gun and his mustang, he climbed the slope of the mountain. He loved the solitude, but he was never alone. There were voices on the wind and steps on his trail. The lofty pine, the lichened rock, the tiny bluebell, the seared crag, all whispered their secrets. For him their spirits spoke. In the morning light, old Stoneface, the mountain, was a red god calling him to the chase. He was a brother of the eagle, at home on the heights where the winds swept and the earth lay revealed below. In the golden afternoon, with the warm sun on his back and the blue canyon at his feet, he knew the joy of doing nothing. He did not need rest, for he was never tired. The sage, sweet breath of the open was thick in his nostrils. The silence that had so many whisperings was all about him. The loneliness of the wild was his. His falcon eye saw mustang and sheep, the puffs of dust down on the cedar level, the Indian riding on a distant ridge, the gray walls and the blue clefts. He was home, still free, still wild, still untainted. He saw with the eyes of his ancestors. He felt them around him. They had gone into the elements from which their voices came on the wind. They were the watchers on his trails. At sunset, he faced the west, and this was his prayer. Great Spirit, God of my fathers, keep my horses in the night. Keep my sheep in the night. Keep my family in the night. Let me wake to the day. Let me be worthy of the light. Now all is well. Now all is well. Now all is well. Now all is well. And he watched the sun go down, and the gold sink from the peaks, and the red die out of the west, and the gray shadows creep out of the canyon to meet the twilight and the slow, silent, mysterious approach of night with its gift of stars. Night fell. The white stars blinked. The wind sighed in the cedars. The sheep bleated. The shepherd dogs bayed the morning coyotes. And the Indian lay down in his blankets with his dark face tranquil in the starlight. All was well in his lonely world. Phantoms hovered. Illness lingered. Injury and pain and death were there. The shadows of a strange white hand flitted across the face of the moon. But now all was well. The Navajo had prayed to the God of his fathers. Now all was well. And this, thought Shefford, in revolt, was what the white man had killed in the Indian tribes, was reaching out now to kill in this wild remnant of the Navajos. The padre, the trapper, the trader, the prospector, and the missionary. So the white man had come, some of him good, no doubt, but more of him evil. And the young brave learned to thirst 
that could never be quenched at the cold, sweet spring of his forefathers, and the young maiden burned with a fever in her blood, and lost the sweet, strange, wild fancies of her tribe. End of chapter 8, part 1